He's the curly head mate who's ready to go Nobody knows snow like reggae no snow He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor This is the show where we call it Chill Factor Talk on the power, are you ready right now? There's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah, this is Chill Factor Hi, I'm Reggae Ellison. Welcome to the Chill Factor Podcast. Well, here we are, the start of February, and the Winter Olympics are about to start in Beijing. Now, there's a 44-strong Australian team, and they're raring to go. And with a number of Australian athletes in contention for a medal, it's going to be a pretty interesting couple of weeks. Now, in keeping with the timing of the Olympics, this episode's guest is one of our greatest skiers, four-time Olympian Zali Stegel, who won Australia's first Olympic ski racing medal when she took bronze in the slalom at Nagano in 1998. Zali then went on the following year to win the World Championships. Now, she retired from ski racing after the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City before pursuing a career in law, raising a family, and then in 2019, she entered federal politics as an independent. Uh, she won the Blue Ribbon Liberal seat of Warringah on Sydney's northern beaches, ousting former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Now, Zali's campaign focused on climate change and integrity in government, issues that I think it's fair to say were not major concerns for her predecessor. As you can imagine, it's been a pretty Pretty busy couple of years for Zali, and there's another election just around the corner. Plenty to talk about, so let's drop in. Zali Stegel, thanks for joining us here on the Chill Factor podcast. Thanks for having me. It brings back great memories. <laughs> I suppose it does. Well, Zali, I'm not quite sure where to start with you. You've got such a long resume, um, you know, going all the way back, of course, uh, during your, your ski racing days. So this is a a snow title, so we'll start with that, you know, because I think it's just a natural progression from there. But, um, of course, you know, bronze medal at the Nagano Olympics in 1998, world champion again in uh, 1999. So that sort of late 90s was the peak of your um, skiing career? It was. I mean, it's a long journey, and I think when people look at athletes that are successful, it's um, people often think, oh, you know, overnight success or, you've, you know, how lucky are you to have reached the peak or to be successful? Reality is it takes a lot of years and a lot of work. I mean, some athletes are incredibly lucky and they just hit the top young and they, you know, everything falls together. But for most, it takes a lot of hard work um, and a lot of dedication. So for me, yeah, it was a long journey from my early days at Perisher, you know, as a, you know, I used to be down there every weekend from school, yeah. um, going to my first Olympics when I was 17 to then, you know, it just took time to work it out to get the right combination with the coaches and training and to bring your fist points down and gradually, you know, working your way through to those great years. Yeah, 97, 98, 99 were great. Um, and then, look, also, you know, the natural reality of sporting careers is, you have to call time on them at some point and right. it's either performance or your motivation or psychologically it's hard or you might get injured or you're not selected anymore. And, you know, it's it's always I've had a lot of time to reflect. Yeah. Ironically, actually, right now we've just passed my 20-year anniversary from when I retired from Salt Lake City uh, in 2002. So it does feel like a long time ago. Well, I was thinking like that. You went to four Olympics, correct? It, um, was it Lillehammer? Yeah. Were they sort of Yeah, I went up? to, uh, so Alberville in 1992 when I was yeah. 17. Um, it was one of that. Well, that was sort of the big starter in that yeah. I was very young 
uh, I was doing well on Europa Cup and just starting on World Cup, but I had to choose to defer my HSC. That was the yeah. year I was doing my year 12 um, and go to Europe, train full time and sort of put my hat in the ring. We only had two spots to, for selection between the men and the women. Wow. Uh, Stevie Lee had one spot. And the other spot was up for grads and uh, I had to be over in Europe early to train for that. Then I got to go to the 1994 Olympics in Lillehammer as a 19-year-old. So that was when we split winter and summer games and they you know, they had a, a, another winter games two years later in Norway. Uh, and then we had 98 in Nagano and then I went to 2002 in Salt Lake City. So... A lot, a lot of years of travelling. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fairly elite club, four-time Olympian. There's not many Australian athletes who can claim that. And, of course, you know, back then it was it was tough going. As you said, there was just yourself in um, you know, two skis, yourself in the women's and Steve Lee in uh, the men's. I suppose you went to, what, three Olympics with Steve or two, just the two? Uh, I believe 94 was his last game. Right. Uh, I think, I think I'm... <laughs> He's a lot older than you, trust me. Um, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, 92, 94 at least. And then well, he, I know he definitely was commentating for me in 98 because he yeah. did the commentary of my, my medal run. Um, but, yeah, look, it, and, and it, it is at a time where and it's hard for, for maybe the young athletes to relate now that this is before social media, before Facebook. Um, we used to go overseas for sort of four or five months at a time. Yeah. You know, you do... I used to fax my assignments to school back. So, you know, the fax machines and you, you didn't have mobile phones, so you didn't have that kind of connection with home that you have now. Yeah. Um, so it really was, uh, I think, a, 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 it was a very isolating environment, but you had to be incredibly uh, dedicated, I think, to, to stick with it. Yeah, of course it was just, it wasn't like there was a, did you have a lot of support, was it? a coach, a physio, a ski technician, or was it um, fairly bare bones for the Australian team? Well, even that took time. I mean, that built over the years. And my, my first four years as a junior, I had different coach every year. My parents had to pay for it, yeah. um, you know, do work in between seasons to pay for it as well. Um, it was a bit of trial and error, finding the system that would work. I joined up with the French team for one year. Um, you know, tried a lot of different things until the Grollo family and Mount Buller put together the uh, Australian Ski Institute um, after the 1994 Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer. And then we started to have that kind of backing of being able to train a bit more full-time and having a coach, uh, which made a huge difference. Before that, obviously, I had support at Perisher, but, you know, you, you really were piecing the programs together. Um, and then we had those years of really building, and the goal was to build for a medal in 98. Um, we had had the bronze relay team medal in short track speed skating at the 94 Olympic Games and the goal was very much to go to the next Games, 98, for the Australian team to, to be in a position to, to medal. Uh, and, and, yeah, look, it, it took a, it did take a lot of work. It's uh, You won a World Cup just prior to those Olympic Games, so you're definitely one of the favourites for a medal. Going into that, I mean, I suppose with the, you know, the uh, Australian Ski Institute, which had just started, um, expectations were there on you. Did you feel the pressure? Uh, it was an interesting year. So the 97-98 World Cup season uh, started with a bang for me. I won the opening World Cup and then I was consistently in the top 
top 15. So as a top seed skier, you've obviously got that expectation that anyone can podium on the day. Um, there was a lot of pressure going into those games in 98. I felt like, you know, I was 23, it was time to really show uh, that I could do it. And obviously I had the results on World Cup, but we had a great strategy. I stayed out of the Olympic Village. I had a week at home in Manly um, before going over there to have it, you know, to get a bit of a refresh. And um, look, the pressure was very much on the aerial team. The expectation was Kirsty, Marshall, Jackie Cooper, that they would medal. And so yeah. it kind of allowed me to get on with the job. Um, I was training and uh, staying with the German team at the time and we just stuck to our race plan and what we were doing on World Cup and that worked really well. And since then, really, the Australian Olympic team has taken that model on board of allowing for people to be outside of the village to prepare ahead of events that allows you to not get caught up in the hype of the Olympic Games and stay focused on your race. So, yeah, there was pressure, but, you know, I don't think there's ever any external pressure that is any greater than the pressure I used to put on myself, you know, yeah. what I was hoping to achieve. I can imagine. Can you still um, recall how you felt when you, I mean, I know, you know, you, you're watching the, the the places change at the finish line there. Can you remember how you felt when you knew you'd uh, secured the, the podium and that bronze medal? Oh, yeah. Look, that's definitely engraved in my mind. Um, look, it was one of those bluebell days, right? We had had a big snowstorm a few days, two days before. They'd cleared all the snow. We woke up on that day to blue skies, you know, really white mountains, like every picture perfect. Yeah. Um, my first one was really good. I was in third place, but I had fourth place. Um, I had Martina Ertug, German scale, really close. And so there was no margin for error. I think it was about five hundredths of a second, so nothing in yeah, it. Um, and then, you, have, you know, you have to wait about three hours before the second run. And so there's a lot of time for the mental to really get into play. But, look, we, we had a game plan. We had trained it. We knew what was coming. And so second run as a lot of listeners would know, you reverse the order for your starters. So basically I was third last to go yeah. in the second run. Um, it had been a really tough course, really tight, lots of ruts, and people were having trouble finishing. Uh, my coaches didn't tell me that. They just said go for it and trust, you know, trust the training. Uh, so when I crossed that, it was a really fast course. I vividly remember being really in the moment and really focused on the pattern, the gates and what needed to be done and being quick. And then I just really re vividly remember crossing that finishing line and having a little bit of that moment where, you know, like it goes silent, where you, you don't hear the crowd and everything because the very first thing you want to do is I turned around and looked at the big screen that yeah. showed your ranking and your time. And as soon as I saw a minus in front of my name, which meant that I was in front of everyone who had skied so far and I was in first place, which meant that there's two skiers to come, I had a medal for sure. Yeah. And at that point, you know, the noise comes rushing in and you notice all the flags and people cheering. And, um, yeah, look, it will always be an incredibly special moment. That Just that. That, that moment in time where you realise that childhood dream, you know, has come true. Can come true. Which resort was it? Because I know Nagano was the host city, but there's quite a few resorts around Nagano. We were up in uh, Shigakogan. Shigakogan. Have you been back? Yeah. I haven't. This is crazy. I haven't been back to Japan since 1998. Wow. I mean um, 
Yeah, and my parents went back about 10 years after the Games and they said you could still see the podium for the medal ceremony in the car park of where they had hosted it. It's yeah. like at the back of the centre and um, it's on my bucket list that I am going back. Yeah, because, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've been to Huckabar and they've got the women's downhill there, I mean, yeah. and um, obviously where they um, they held some of the um, the ice events and things. So, yeah, still a big deal over there. Yeah, and it's a good excuse to go back and just ski some nice powder. Yeah, look, I, I've got to say my, my years have been busy, so the opportunity yeah, to go back hasn't been there, but um, it, it is in that list. You know, my, my kids are nearly all through high school and then it's definitely on the cards. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned before, um, you know, you you did some work with the, the French team. Of course, you spent quite a bit of, you know, a lot of your childhood in France. Was it like the age of four to 14 or something? Yeah, so my parents were classic uh, you know, I lived in Manly, uh, classic beach kind of people, yeah. uh, but loved the mountains, loved skiing. So they had toured around Europe quite a bit and um, found Morzine of Orias in the French Alps, found a chalet, stayed there. You know, my brother and I, Aussie kids that thought nothing but skiing was absolutely the normal sport. Um, so we joined the local race club and as a junior, so underneath Fizz, I very much did for France um, okay. and got good results at French championships and all that. So it was, you know, I think it was a grounding, maybe the discipline, um, also a little more opportunity, like a lot of races. I got to, to race regional and national races, some international races as well. So it did give me that grounding. But, you know, to be fair, it's also the years I spent in Australia because in Australia I had to learn determination, right? I had to learn to, um, you had to problem solve, especially in those days when we didn't have the financial support to have all the coaching staff and, you know, the structure. So you really had to build that desire and, and, and learn to do, think outside the box and learn to do it. So a lot of the girls I grew up with in France didn't actually go on to have successful World Cup careers, right? So it's not just the kilometres on snow when you're I young know. that yeah. plays a part, but it is the combination of how you approach your sport, you know, understanding the technique and all the elements that will help to make you successful. Yeah, of course. Well, you, you mentioned your brother, Zeke, he went on to... Um uh, snowboarding World Cup and now um, his son, your nephew, he's uh, on the Emerging Talent Program as a young ski racer. Yeah, Joey's very keen on skiing and he loves slalom, which is good. He's following following his auntie's footsteps. Have you given him some tips? Can we see you in the coaching? Uh, I do, I do. When I get a chance to go and see him race, it's it's really cool and I follow obviously on, on social media when um, Zeke puts up his races. Um, yeah, it's, really, it's been really good to see them. Oh, and like Nagano was an ex- very special moment for us as a family. Yeah. Zeke got to compete there in the uh, dual slalom in the GS, um, and that was the first time snowboarding was at the Olympics. Um, so for my parents to have both their kids competing was was very special. Yeah, definitely. And in that time in France, you were there living like year round, so it was um, a good experience growing up. <laughs> Not as good as Manly, mind you. <laughs> Uh, well, we were, look, I, I did grow up like a little French kid in the sense that living in a ski resort, I trained, uh, we went to the beach in summer yeah. uh, and did a lot of windsurfing and, and running, um, but in winter it was all about skiing. 
ironically, when I was little, I was a good ice skater. Okay. Uh, and, and they did say I had to choose between figure skating and skiing, and I'm pretty sure I made the right choice. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, look, the years in France, what it also did, obviously, you know, speak French, I learned German. It allowed me to feel very much at home in Europe, which is necessary because as an Australian skier, you have to spend so much time overseas. Yeah. Um, it also gave me that respect for competition, right, that there is – there is just a little more competition going on in the junior age groups in Europe. Um, and so that regular racing, you know, that race fitness is really important. How do you fine-tune your mental approach, you know? the You have to have that killer instinct of wanting to win those races and learning that, you know, when, when things don't go well and you lose a race, being prepared to look at it you know, objectively understand what you did right, what you did wrong, um, and moving on and letting go of the result because if not, it you know, it becomes dead weight. It becomes baggage for your next yeah. events. And I think that's very much what I learned with the amount of racing I did as a kid. Yeah, well, moving forward, you said, you know, you retired after the um, 20, uh, 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake and then, you know, you'd put, as you said, you sort of put off your um, HSC for a year. And then you, know, you end up doing law at university and then going into you know, practicing solicitor and then becoming a barrister. How, what did you learn from ski racing and getting that elite level of, as an athlete that is the grounding for, for adulthood and moving into a profession? Yeah, look, I think professional athletes bring huge skills to the table in their later in life, you know, professionally. I was always a big fan of you need plan A and a plan B and my yep. parents were very keen on that. So I was a good student uh, and when I quit for my HSC to have a, to participate in 1992, the deal was I needed to come back and finish my HSC. So I did that by correspondence and then I started, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communication by correspondence. So for many years travelling, I used to take my textbooks with me and I faxed the assignments back. So by the time I retired in 2002, I had a BA completed, oh so God, I had yeah. tertiary education and then I still wanted to study law. Uh, I, I toyed between media and law uh, and in the end I went with law um, and so I think it's really important for aspiring athletes to remember that balance is good um, it was really healthy for me mentally to be able to study to just to switch off from racing and skiing and you know to, to have something else to focus on so but also you never know when you're going to call time on a sporting career so you have to have plan B, what else are you going to do? You've got a long life, you've got to find new challenges. So um, for me, yeah, it was, uh, look, I was, I had uh, 20, uh, 13 years, so 26 winters in a row wow. from when I was 14 to when I retired in 2002. So I was pretty keen to get away from skiing, I've got to be honest. Yeah. Um, I I needed some time in the sun um, and I had never been injured. So in my entire career, uh, actually, from when I was four years old, when I started racing, I never, I was, I never had any injuries, so I never missed a single season. That's amazing. So amazing physically, but exhausting mentally. I, yeah. I really, um, you know, sometimes if you have that opportunity for a bit of a pause or a break, it can really help you recharge your batteries emotionally and. You know, think about your why, think about what's motivating you. And so for me, 
by the time I quit, I, I retired in 2002, I was fairly tired <laughs> emotionally yeah. um, and um, I was really looking for my next sort of purpose, you know, what's my why, why, you know, especially after the September 11 incidents and yeah. I was at a ski race and that happened, um, I was really needing to find sort of other purpose. So I decided to study law uh, and, and have kids. So yeah. then that was a whole new challenge in life. So you got two children, right? Uh, so I had two boys in my yeah. first marriage, then got remarried, um, and so I have so I had five for a oh. long time. <laughs> uh, modern family, which brought its challenges, but yeah. really, um, you know, really, inter- really interesting and rewarding. Um, and then obviously studied law for four years, and I did that through. Um, the Legal Practitioners Admission Board, which is like a weekend school. So I yeah. worked, had kids and studied. Um, I was one of those crazy students. That, you know, I brought babies into law lectures, you know, in baby yeah. dawns and stuff like that. Um, but, look, I really enjoyed, I, I, I think once an athlete, always an athlete in that you liked, um, I think especially professional athletes, you tend to be very driven with goals and wanting to achieve certain things and prove to yourself that you can do it. And for me, it was really important to say that my post-sporting career would be as challenging and demanding as my sporting career had been. So I wanted to go to the bar and be a barrister. And um, ironically, as a barrister, advocacy is very similar to competing. You know, you, you have to get your ducks in a row. You have to do your preparation, like your training, and then on the day as a barrister in front of the judge, you know, it, it, it's a very, it's like sport, it's very adversarial and you have yeah. to you have to handle the pressure. And uh, what, are you specialise, what were you specialising in? Uh, look, in those days I started out more equity, commercial law, um, and then gradually I got more into sports law and family law. Um, yeah. I found that I really enjoyed dealing with people and helping people. Yeah. Um, but what was really, look, I really enjoyed my work on the Court of Arbitration for Sport, uh, where I got to put together my experience as an athlete and yeah. my experience as a barrister in looking at, you know, the when you have uh, disputes around selections and, and participating in the games. Um, and I was also on the anti-doping rule violation panel, so looking at, you know, how do we process and deal with positive drug cases. So I really enjoyed that part of putting the, you know, my both my caps on to, to come together and, and listen to athletes when they're going through that process. So I actually went to my fifth Olympic Games as an arbitrator uh, when I went to the 2018 PyeongChang Olympic Games. Yeah, and that's like an amazing life you'd sort of set up and things you know it was fulfilling career you know family you've got it's just a you know a great history as a um a, a professional athlete and all of a sudden someone suggests you move into politics um you know i know obviously the climate is a passion of yours but how were you approached and what was your initial reaction when someone said okay we want you to stand as an independent Do you think it's a good idea and in you know a blue ribbon seat, um, liberal seat like Warringah, where Tony Abbott had been there for twenty years, if not longer. Yeah, well, look, I guess you know I had had plenty of people had said a girl from Manly can't be world ski champion, right? So yeah. um, I've never let anyone's 
you know, limitations on what they think is achievable limit what I thought we could have a go at. Well, so, you are one of the few snow athletes on that Olympic Hall of Fame down at, of course, uh, down at Manly Cove. Yeah. So, look, it's, so for me, it's not. I'm, I'm never um, discouraged by other people's perception that it's too hard or negative. So for me, ironically, I wasn't approached. Um, look, I'm a Manly girl, born in Manly, lived here all my life. Felt more and more frustrated about politics in Australia. You know, I'm a very uh, evidence-based person, right? So for me, the evidence is undeniable about what we need to do about climate change. And ironically, we have the we have the answers, we have the solutions. And there is huge gain. So my competitive instinct kicks in as well, in that if we really want to be as a nation leading the way in so many new sectors. We have to be proactive. You have to look for the new angle. You have to take on the new technologies. Um, And so Manly, we were, I think, fairly held back by fairly old-fashioned ideas and an unwillingness to accept the science but also accept where the future is, right? You can't hold on to the past indefinitely. You've got to be thankful for the past, really thankful for the contribution so many people and industries have given Australia. But you've got to stay competitive and, you know, move with the times and and go ahead. So for me, um, I felt strongly that it was time to, you know, maybe step back into the public arena. I think you're in the public eye as a sports person. As a barrister, it's much more private. It was more about helping one client at a time. And then when the 2019 election came about, I really felt that, my community in Warringah needed another choice. You know, we needed an alternative option. Um, And and so I was very keen to step up as an independent. And what was great was the community had really been building as well. So I wasn't approached, but I reached out to the groups that I knew were forming um, and we all came together with a very, um, you know, very aligned vision on what we felt representative democracy could look like um and it's been an amazing journey like and you've got to remember as an independent i can't do this unless i have the support of the community i am only one vote of my community well that's right and you did um garner a lot of support and you could see that sort of momentum building you know like i grew up in manly so even though i live in threadbow now but i watch it closely um and just seeing that sort of support sort of was a bit of a groundswell you know as um a wave of action heading your way. Um, that must have felt good as you moved towards the election. I mean, because it was a big ask, let's face it, former Prime Minister, um, you know, uh, a Member of Parliament for a long, long time, a, a man who's been a politician for a long, long time. Um, that was ambitious, I think, it's a fair call. Yeah, look, but see, it was funny. there were some funny moments in that 2019 campaign where... You know, uh, uh, one key moment was actually we had a, my first debate with him was um, a transport debate where it was really important to hold my ground and, you know, not get pushed around. But then we had a debate that was in the surf club, the Queenscliff Surf Club, which Tony's a member of Queenscliff, right? He volunteers there and definitely not friendly territory. Um, and it was surreal. It was like entering a boxing match. Like there was crowds, there was demonstrators outside, you had... You know, you had the pro-Tony camp and then you had the environmental um, campaigners. I had told my team to stay away. We didn't want to be involved in skirmish. Um, but, look, it was full on. Like this was it was live on television, questions coming at you. So, But it felt so similar to 
waiting in the you know in between runs of the Olympic Games where you've got to stick to your game plan, hold your nerve, and you know you know you're about to have to perform and you have to do it and you have to just stay true to that. And so I felt incredibly well equipped and well prepared for the for the pressure of that situation because of my my sporting days. You know, sport yeah. had taught me to trust in my preparation, handle the pressure. You know, that fight or flight uh, reflex can be pretty strong. So, um, look, it, it's been really, really interesting but also incredibly rewarding to do. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, look, that, that campaign, sure, you know, Tony's a very wily competitor, like, you know, <laughs> I didn't yeah. take him on that. Um, but, uh, look, you know, I remember being... Uh, at the World Champs in 1999, I was six after first run. I was equal six with Penela Viberg, right, and she is like a huge champion of skiing. Um, and she went down before me for the second run. I could, from the start gate, I can remember hearing the crowd that she had clearly come down with the fastest time. My coach had set the course, you know, the pressure was on and I knew I really had to give it everything. Um, and in, it's in those split moments of life where you've just got to stay focused, true to yourself and know that you can do it. And, you know, I remember that was the run where, you know, I, I won by eight-tenths of a second in yeah. front of uh, Penilla, um, you know, became world champion. That was just a, an amazing opportunity. And, and to me, you know, just, and it would have been so easy to be really daunted by someone of Penilla's stature, her results, you know, um, to not think that you can take them on. But, um, yeah, so I, I didn't let Tony's stature at all intimidate me. <laughs> no, no, I think, um, it, it's, you know, like fair to say the two-party polit political system in Australia can get a bit nasty sometimes. And, um your movement into politics and how, how that's been. I mean, 2019 is when it started. You're two years into it, looking at another election um, looming probably, well, sometime between March and May. How have you found it? That, like, um, is it everything you thought politics would be? I mean, the good and the bad? Yeah, unfortunately, I had low expectations. So <laughs> I think we all um, Yeah, look, the good and the bad. So the good is... Um, you are, it's an incredible privilege to be in Parliament, to have that opportunity to debate, to bring attention to really important issues and to help people. Like, look, at the end of the day, your number one role is to represent your community and be the gateway to Commonwealth um, facilities. So we help people with NDIS inquiries and plans, with aged care, with visas, with travel exemption. And in the last three years with COVID, that's been huge. Like the amount of people we have been able to help has been really, really um, fantastic. Um, and then, you know, refugees and so on, a lot of issues, um, advocating for more support around business. And so you are ultimately a spokesperson for your community. So so that's been the good side of it. Um, the bad side of it is I do see a machine that's broken in Parliament. I think the two-party machine, this idea of if it's not one side, it's the other side, is really broken. And ironically, in business and in sport, in so many other areas of our lives, we've moved away from that and we've embraced competition. You know, people want 
choice. Consumers want choice. Um, it's a little bit, I, I sort of make the analogy a little bit of, you know, when Uber came on the scene with taxis, right, and then it's forced taxi providers to do better. It's, you know, you've got choice of how does, do you want to be, you know, access. Um, I feel the two-party system of, you know, the binary choice of politics is broken because what it does is both sides are so focused on the game of wedging the other side, of scoring a point, of being negative, of, you know, vote for me because I'm the least worst option, you know, fear the other side. We've gotten into this situation of a complete lack of vision. Like I, I, I struggle to find any politicians in the major parties in Canberra that have genuinely got a vision for what they want to improve in Australia. What do they want to do, you know? Like how do they want to make Australia better? Uh, um, uh, and and I, I do think that's what's needed. You need people that are prepared to look beyond just the three-year election cycle of how can I hold on to power or how can I take power to what is actually in the good of Australia? What do we need to do to set up future generations? And that's on issues like the economy, our business, our, how we trade with the world, our geopolitics, our national safety um, and climate. You know, at the end of the day, we only have one planet. The environment we operate in will dictate the lives we have. So, it, But it takes um, political courage to sometimes have to advocate for what is not popular but what is necessary. And it is, I think, part of leadership and political leadership is you have to be you have to be prepared to make the case and explain why, why this is necessary and bring people on board for it. Show where the opportunities are. And I just don't see that in the current political system of the major parties. Major parties have a process, and it's, it's as bad on both sides. Like they, the pre-selection process, you know, it's sort of an inner sanctum of yeah, uh, members that decide. They, so it's like, you know, at best, like a membership to major parties is gradually decreasing, right? So it's this smaller pool of people deciding who they say should be the representative. And then it's this marketing machine that kicks in on behalf of the parties to, um, you know, to raise the profile and to basically sell a brand and you're selling a brand of a political party to the electorate and, and people, you know, we have a great system of compulsory voting so people have to make a choice, which I think is a good thing, but if you don't have any choices you're particularly happy with, what do you do? How do you make your vote count? And that's where I think there is this surge, um, there is a new wave of politics which is community-based. You know, people, at the end of the day, people want their vote in Parliament to count for something. They want it to be their representation. And I think that's why you've got this growth of community independence that are coming up in many, many seats where people are saying, well, hang on a minute, you know. Yeah. These decisions that have been made don't reflect what we're worried about here on the ground. Well, I think and it's definitely true. Obviously, uh, visionaries get sort of squeezed out of uh, the major parties because, as you said, it's just playing the game. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it is disappointing. And I suppose the electorate, is, uh, it's great to see them reacting that way. And you think people have been inspired and elect, um, 
independence around Australia, obviously your success in such a tightly held seat, you know, like a bit of a jewel in the crown of the, um, you know, in New South Wales as far as the um, coalition with the Conservative Party, Liberal Party goes, um, are you expecting, I mean, obviously they'd love nothing more than to see the end of Zali Stegall. Um, are you <laughs> expecting a fairly torrid battle coming up into this um this election campaign already, you know, they say, oh, you've only got, you know, you know, you've just got sort of one thing you're chasing down, which is climate, you know, um, not looking at the bigger picture and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, you know, Zali's one policy campaign kind of thing. Um, how prepared are you for how nasty it could get? Very prepared. Look, I expected it to be nasty last time. I expect it to be nasty this time. Again, I think people forget that as an Olympic athlete, I'm used to showing up and having to handle the competition and you know that you can't take anything for granted and you've got to do the work. So for me, um, the most important thing was the day after the 2019 election was day one of the 2022 election. You know, I I would be judged on what I've delivered and how I've been in the role. So every day has been about doing the job and doing the job to the best of my ability so that people can know what they're, you know, really know what they're picking. So, and I think that is the difference again with party, um, you know, that people that get into politics for the sake of their personal ambition of, you know, that they're on a pathway to promotion, to power, you know, you're not doing it then for the community. You're doing it from a selfish point of view. If you're doing it because you genuinely want to give back to your community by representing them, then I think it's a very different premise that you start from and how you approach um, what you're doing. So, you know, being available, listening to the community, they're all things that are really important. So, yes, I expect dirty tactics, dirty tricks, um, uh, and we're trying to debunk them ahead of time. So I think in, we are entering a new era when it comes to information. You know, you saw the last presidential US election with a lot of fake news, the yeah. power of social media. It means news can travel very quickly but very hard to debunk if it's false. Um, but also, you know, you can you can hold people to account for, for, for lies as well. So... It's about understanding the power of that medium and information. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's really important that people then know where do they turn to for true information, for the facts, where do they go to for, um, you know, to, to make up their minds. Um, so I think we are going to see a lot of dirty tactics in the campaigns, um, you know, from fake uh, endorsements, fake kind of material, We've seen that a little bit in local government elections with people purporting to be other people doing things like phone calls and letterboxes. And so I think then that that pulling back the curtain on how you're, you know, for me it will be really important that I'm pledging to behave in a certain way, that this is how my team will operate. And if there's anything that really isn't consistent with that, then it's really to be looked at in a pretty suspicious way because it's highly likely to be a dirty trick. So I think, again, a strategy exposed is a strategy kind of, you know, is is really important. Uh, It minimises its uh, impact. So that's going to be a focus. 
Look, I think they've been, you know, we've had a lot of rumoured different candidates that will be thrown at me. Um, they've been looking for high profile. Yeah. I'm not, look, at the end of the day, for me, I don't like personality politics. I don't like focusing on the person. Uh, it's really about what you stand for, what you're going to be able to do in Canberra. Um, and I'm, I can show what I've been able to do. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, really, really important for people to see. So, um, yes, it will be. But, I look, I think there are a number of independents running in a lot of seats. I think Warringah has definitely inspired a lot of other seats, which is great. Um, and so I think, uh, uh, oh, I think the coalition's got a lot of spot fires to put out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the criticisms you do cop is you came in on... Um climate and environment, you know, that you've sort of, you know, one issue kind of thing. But obviously things you are concerned with and you have been talking about, they're more progressive things like, you know, refugees, recognition of First Nations, um, you know, and the climate. But um, there's always been this thing, you know, left and right. The environment, um, it's not really a left and right thing. I think that's the most important thing. It's not like, okay... I vote conservative, therefore I'm voting against the environment. But unfortunately, that's kind of a fact at the moment. It is how the debate has evolved, and I think that's a real, uh, that's a shame, um, and that's what we're trying to fix. Um, I think traditionally, um, because ironically, conservatives are all about, you know, intergenerational debt and about, you know, so, so environmental debt should not be any more palatable than fiscal debt. No. Um, so, um, but uh, look, I think it's environment, caring about the environment has always has been pitched as being a economy and progress or the environment. And I really disagree with that. I think it really is about all go together. You cannot have one without the other. Um, I, you know, I'm not a greenie. I don't chain myself to a tree. I'm not, you know, I'm pragmatic. Yeah. But I that we have certain um, we have certain realities we need to engage with. Um, I'm a real realist in that, um, you know, and, and I'm very competitive. I want us to win. I want us to have competitive advantage of, of, around the world. So that means you need to be aware of how things are changing, of what is working, what isn't. And yeah. you shouldn't just continue doing something just because you've always done it if it's shown to be really bad for you and ultimately will be a, have a very negative impact on your future prospects. So I think that whole binary choice of pitching environmental concern as being a left issue has been really damaging. Yes. I know it's because um, environmental, you know, global warming will overwhelmingly impact the poorer socioeconomic populations and they are not the ones who have most contributed to it right so I do understand all that but if it's always pitched as a a social rebalancing then you're going to you're pitching people in a very I, I think it's it's pitching environmental concern in a way that is is difficult and you're kind of excluding half the ideological you know uh, uh, uh you know, voters from that debate. And I think that's been really damaging. And that's why I think that sensible centre, that you've got to be able to look at each issue on its merits and look at what do we need. So, you know, 
yeah, the, the, I'm sort of a long way from a one-issue politician. Because, yeah, I know, totally. You know, like done a lot around our local economy, our response to COVID, what does health need? How are we going to cope? Like, you know, you think about our health response of the last two years, well, the reality is we're going to be in a pandemic for some time, right? With yeah. COVID and other things are going to come. What structural reform do we need to look at in health to ensure we have a sustainable frontline health service that copes with the pressure we put it under? At the moment, we've been in this two-year kind of pressure cooker of everyone pitch in and do extra shifts to make it work. But that is not a sustainable model no. over the long term. We we have to look at that. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much, um, I don't think of myself as a politician yet, but um, <laughs> I think I think of myself as just a, a, a sensible, practical person that's realistic, that looks at the evidence and then wants to track that best course with the facts as we know them. Yeah, well... Um... Looking at, you know, what you've done in Parliament, you know, presenting that climate bill gets shut down pretty quickly, debate gets shut down. Then there was the um, PEP 11, like a big concern to everyone on the northern beaches is, you know, drilling uh, exploration oil and gas off the, the coast of between Newcastle and Sydney. People who describe themselves as moderate, you know, um, liberal politicians who we, you know, in Sydney obviously didn't, you know, they don't even vote on things like that. How does it feel when you... You know, things just get shut down and you often do you feel like you're just bashing your head against a brick wall because of the nature of our parliament, the two-party system, you know? Uh, yes and no. Look, again, you've got to understand winning those arguments takes many shades, right? Yeah. So, you know, your ultimate victory, sure, is past legislation. Your next one is making sure the conversation's there, the pressure is there on decision-makers. We've gotten the private sector has completely shifted to net zero commitments. Um, If you think back to 2019, no one was talking net zero by 2050. Um, With the campaign around the bills, we have shifted the whole private sector into that commitment. We've got state state and territory governments all there. Um, And we now even have the coalition and the nationals, you know, in theory, committing to net zero by 2050. It's a pretty empty promise because they don't actually have plan to do it but even that, it's a pretty empty promise but they would never have even made that commitment if it wasn't for the pressure that people like me and the campaign around the climate bill is doing so all of this it's shift right and sometimes change happens oh so slowly and incrementally until all of a sudden you have you reach a tipping point and that tipping point will then create bigger change so um yeah they can shut that down but we had an inquiry that showed overwhelming support from all sectors of business for the climate the bill and for that legislation and there was a win with the yeah yeah PEP 11, you know, that became so politically unpalatable, right? That was toxic for the local MPs that they have they had to get rid of that or they, you know, they will lose their seats, right? They could not continue. And so it shows, it, and that empowers community because communities realise we can stop by having a voice in parliament, by putting up solutions, we can stop these projects we don't like what else can we stop? What else can we change, right? And so I'm a big believer in 
building blocks, right? You need to keep, um, you are going to get the wins. You're going to gradually change the conversation. And more and more electorates going independent mean you're going to get more and more uh, building blocks to change the way we do things. So, um, you know, some of those might, might look disappointing and they are frustrating, but I'm always, I'm a 10 steps person and so I'm always looking at, right, well, that's battle one, but what's my next, what's our next strategy? Yeah, well, um, potentially, you know, we saw it before with um, independence holding balance of power, like I think around 2013, Potentially that could happen. I mean, have you watched Total Control on the ABC? I have watched Total I Control. You might have. Uh, I've also watched over the summer holidays. I watched Borgen, which is actually a, a mini television series from Denmark about you know in European countries you have a lot more countries with minority governments and a lot of yeah. multiple parties and they form very collaborative governments. And I think we need that. We need way more choice, way more transparency about what happens in decision-making in Australia. Because uh, at the moment, ironically, we already have technically a minority government. You know, the coalition is two parties, Liberals and Nationals. There's a deal between them yeah. and that deal is private. So there is negotiating going on. Um, I just think we need a few more people around the table, you know. I mean, then like, whether there would be a change would be interesting. I mean, Labor has to win eight seats to form governments uh, in their own right. Um, you know, and there's a, I think the, the era of the major parties speaking to a whole nation is nearly over because yeah. you, you, you can't be everything to all people and still stay genuine and, um, uh, and keep your integrity about issues. Um, that's not to say we need a lot of different people to come to the table and work collaboratively on best outcomes for vast majority of Australians. Yeah, which is what we'd like to see uh, achieved in, in by our, there you go. our politicians, our political leaders. Now, um, with the climate change, you know, like obviously, you know, from a snow you know, perspective, you know, with Ski Magazine and Mount Watch is a snow website. Living here in Threadbow, I've seen in the last three decades the shortening of our winters. Um, and even um, now they had a, Stuart Dive, the general manager of Threadbow, was saying they're investing in particular snowmaking systems that will, because he said they'll be more efficient in May and June because the days of being uh, having temperatures to make snow even in early August on their way out. In many ways, it like I look at it and go, is it too late, you know? it's uh, I know because, you know, as far as I can see and people in, in my industry, you know, our industry, they go, well, time is running out. And then you look at something like um, what happened in Glasgow, it's sort of fairly disheartening because, you know, <laughs> the fossil fuel lobby is so strong and so powerful. And um, I don't know, do you still have cause for optimism? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and at the end of the day, this is not a fight or that we can never give up, right? You can't no. give up. So you have to keep, you know, if one avenue doesn't work, you've got to keep looking for the next avenue. What's your next strategy going to be? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, you know, skied on glaciers in Europe and the, the speed at which they're receding and melting is just frightening. Like you say, seasons are getting shorter Technology is filling the gaps. So you look at all the, you know, modern snowmaking. Where would our seasons be if you didn't have modern snowmaking, right? And that's a bit of a um, sword too because they're yeah. using energy. 
So yeah, yeah. But look, a lot of the resorts have made are committed to net zero. Yep. Uh, you know, they they and getting rid of plastics on the mountain, all of those aspects. So the resorts are very aware of their environmental footprint and what they need to do to offset that. And so I'm really encouraged when I, you know, I'm aware of what's going on. Yeah. And and that's really good. Um, and this is where I guess. You know, I I am I, I strongly believe we can maintain certain aspects of our quality of life, right? I'm not saying we have to go back to give up all the luxuries, but we need to do it in a more mindful, more sustainable way. Um, and so technology will fill in certain gaps when it comes to seasons and weather and, um, you know, like cloud seeding and, you know, snow making. But that will all be for absolutely nothing if we reach the kind of temperature predictions that we're on track for. Um, let's be real. We're already at about 1.5 degrees of warming in Australia. Um, we're on track globally, um, you know, to about 3.4 degrees globally and over 4 degrees in Australia. Now, yeah. you know, there will be so many aspects that will be, it's all over Red Rover in Australia if we get to those temperatures. And there is no magic pill. There's no magic fix. So once we pass certain tipping points, yeah. um, and we are fast approaching those tipping points, um, it will accelerate change. So, you know, obviously weather patterns change, um, you know, large events happen. Everything gets magnified. So snowstorms will be that much colder and that much worse, but heat storms and bushfires, floods, hurricanes, you know, howl storms, um, melting of ice caps. I mean, once we start, we get into changing of all our ocean currents and melting of the Antarctic, we're really into dangerous territory. Um, and, and, you know, I've had scientists talk to me about we're going to have, you know, big shields over the Arctic to create the reflection of sunbeams to avoid further absorption of heat and, you know, all these crazy, wonderful technologies, which are great, but if we know we're, we're accelerating towards this problem, I think the easiest step is to just take the, you know, start choosing the safer course the safer option and, and and the irony is they're there we have the technology and that we have the opportunity Australia has so much opportunity and they don't you know they will reduce costs they will reduce your yeah, cost of living so they are win-wins and yeah, that's no, the part you're talking right. about it's, it's just why it seems so frustrating you know and like you know it's convenient to or yeah I don't know uh politicians and some people in certain industries find it very convenient they can ignore science when they want and then you know then they get frustrated with people who are ignoring science as far as vaccination goes but they're totally happy to ignore climate science um and as you said it can only go so far that's why you know it's, it's awesome that sort of you stepped into the brink and as you said it's sort of become it is it's like you know you think it's just it's just a conversation people have all the time now net zero is um achievable and hopefully it's going to be probable because i think it's going yeah. to become with so much so much pressure is going to come down on the political side of things that um they're going to have no choice but to act yeah absolutely and look it does come down to choices we all make you know we all have to play our part but ultimately our most 
powerful is is our vote because the decisions that get made at government level are massive influencing outcomes. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, um, Zali, I really appreciate your time here. But before we go, we're on the uh, Winter Olympics are starting in just over a a week. Uh, Are you looking forward to that? Absolutely. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to catch a bit. Look, slightly controversial, obviously, with being in Beijing and human rights records. Um, Had to deal with that a lot. But, look, my thoughts are with the athletes. At the end of the day, they're there to, um, you know, do their best and hopefully, you know, make childhood dreams come true. So um, I'll be watching and cheering. Yeah, and hopefully uh, next time the IOC might be a bit more thoughtful about who they choose to host um, the, the Olympic Games. Absolutely. And if you could give, um, you know, we've got a fairly strong team, 44 athletes I think over there, um, you know, looking pretty strong for a number of uh, medals, particularly in some of the freestyle sport, our mogul skiers, of course, and in um, snowboarding, halfpipe and even skeleton. What would your advice be if you were over there mentoring our athletes now? Uh, oh, look, we've got a really good mix of some young first-time athletes and some very experienced athletes. So I think, you know, turn to those experienced ones for any advice, but um, uh, stick, to, stick to your game plans. If you're there, you know what, what, you do, what, what works for you and keep doing that. Don't get caught up in the hype of the moment. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. I mean, some of the new sports, like we've got a curling team um, and skeleton yeah. and the dual bobsleigh. Uh, really cool to, to watch the snowboarding, you know, Scotty James. We've still got so much going on. Um, you know, there'll be some sad moments remembering some of the people that won't be there. Um, you know, we've had a few really hard losses in the winter sports in the last few years. Um, and so I think, you know, my thoughts will also be with, with their families. But overwhelmingly with, with the team, I, you know, I just really wish them the best of luck to do their best. All right, then stick to their game plan. And Zali, no doubt you'll stick to your game plan as things heat up uh, over the next few months. Uh, Thanks again for taking uh, all this time to talk to us here at Chill Factor and um, look forward to seeing you up on the hill someday. Maybe we'll go for a rundown Zali's over at Blue Cow. Love to. Okay, bye-bye. See ya. Take care. Well, that wraps up another Chill Factor podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review and share it with friends. We'll drop the next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, I hope you get out and live and love Australian skiing. Find us at chillfactor.com. This is the show where we call it Chill Factor.